Good morning, church. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be focusing on verses 19 to 22 in our time this morning, but we're going to uh, begin reading in verse 11. should be page 976 in the Pew Bible. If you grab that Bible in front of you, uh, if you didn't bring one, you can open up to page 976. We'd love for you to read along and be a Berean. And I know that the guy up here is not just making this stuff up. So did you know that's your job every Sunday? To know that the guy speaking to you is not just making this stuff up. So you want to say, show me that. Show me that in the Bible. So that's exactly what we intend to do. So Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. The word of God reads, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, and here's our text for this morning. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can approach you through your Son and by your Spirit and seek your help this morning, Lord, to listen, to focus, to let the plans of the day and the week and the distractions that we're tempted to look at, to let that flee from our mind, Lord, that we might love you with all our mind as we think about your word and what it says so that we might understand it, that that understanding it, we might live it, that we might be grateful for what it says, that we might be comforted by the things mentioned, that we might be encouraged, that we might live differently, Lord, in light of it. We seek your help in that task this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I hope that you all had a happy Thanksgiving. Hopefully you've recovered from your food coma (laughs) a couple days later. Uh, If you're still suffering, you should eat less next year. Uh, But I recognize that on holidays, we, uh, I think maybe, maybe it's just me, maybe there's other, I think a lot of us, get bombarded with a lot of questions and feelings. 
So if you, if you grew up in a family and your family has been strong and you've been celebrating that Thanksgiving the same every year, then maybe you don't really have these sorts of questions. For you, it's just, it's always been this and it's, you know, it's wonderful. But for others who have lost the family, to others who celebrate these things with families that are not their family, or to others who have been brought into other families wonderfully, lovingly, uh, there's, there's a lot of feelings that you can have. You can, you can think, you know, do I really belong here? Is this my home? Am I really welcomed? Am I accepted? Is, 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 this, is there a place for me here? Are these people really my people? Do they view me as their people? I think that's what we all want when we come together and enjoy these times together. Do they view me? As an outsider or an insider? Maybe some of you are thinking, you think too much, Jeff. <laughs> What's wrong with your family? No. Uh, I think that, that these are the things we have. And it, could, it doesn't have to be a holiday. It could be any group that we enter into, any community, any place we're seeking to be united with others. And I think that those feelings are not far off from the types of questions and feelings that Gentiles coming to Christ in the first century, uh, in the beginning stages of, in the growth of the gospel, in the time which Paul is writing, the sorts of questions that they're having. Gentiles who are coming to faith in a Jewish Messiah, being brought into and surrounded by many Jewish believing people, and also many non-Jewish believing people as well, raises lots of questions like the ones we were just mentioning. Uh, where does this put me? It, it, what's the Gentiles' place in this Jewish faith? What's the, Jew, what's the Gentiles' position in this Jewish religion? How, how do we fit together? What has Christ done here? You see, the natural relation between Jew and Gentile in, in, in Jesus' Jesus's day and Paul's day uh, was not a good relationship. It was quite heated. Paul describes it as hostility and as animosity. Josephus, he writes in the first century, he's a first century Jewish historian who records uh, the Gentile to Jewish animosity when he says that Gentiles, quote, feel a hatred for our religion, which is undeserved and unauthorized. You could look at a whole bunch of other incidents that had happened. One, uh, Luke in the book of Acts mentions in passing, says in Acts chapter 18 that after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. How's that for a Jew-Gentile relationship? Uh, welcome to Rome. All the Jews leave now. And all the Jews had to leave. Can you imagine what that would do to the relationships between Jews and Gentiles. Likewise, Jews commonly view Gentiles with disdain, seeing them as unclean and sinful, and Jews of Jesus' day would not even eat with the Gentiles. And so you have, you have a big task before you if you're going to somehow convince both Jews and Gentiles that they are one, that they are now united, that they are both Together, God's people. That's a tall order. How do you take them who are separated by such animosity and make them one? How do you unite those who are otherwise so divided? How do you create a unity, a lasting, permanent, unconquerable unity between them? How do you make sure that both of them realize that there's a place for them and that they belong and one doesn't have to become the other and the other doesn't have to stop being what they are? I think that this passage addresses some of our deepest longings for feeling like we belong and are welcomed in the family of God and also addresses some of our deepest problems that we have in regards to estrangement and alienation from God and from one another. But the way that Christ sought to change this is that he took Gentiles who were far off and he gave them privileges. 
and he gave privileges to Gentiles that they also shared with the Jews. And so he made them and gave them a co-equal status with their Jewish believing brothers and sisters. And those privileges that were given to the Gentiles and enjoyed by them, as long, uh, along with their fellow Jewish believing brothers, are privileges that are key to understanding how this unity was created. And they're key to promoting the unconquerable unity that we enjoy in the body of Christ. And so the main idea for us this morning is that in Ephesians 2, verse 19 to 22, we see three new privileges for Gentile believers so that we will enjoy our co-equal status and promote unconquerable unity in the body of Christ. In your bulletin, there's some blanks that you can fill in as we go. And I'll just mention up front here that if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus yet, you have to understand that the privileges that the Gentiles are being described as enjoying are those same privileges that you can leave today, this morning, out of this room, enjoying as well. Gentiles, if I I didn't explain what that is yet, just means non-Jew. And so if you're here and you're not a Jewish person, (laughs) there's good news. You don't have to be a Jewish person (laughs) to be saved and enjoy these privileges. But what you do have to do is you have to do what the Gentiles in this passage that Paul's talking about have done. They have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus, believing in him, they have enjoyed these privileges. And so, the only thing between you and and enjoying these privileges today or not is whether or not you will believe in the Messiah. So please do that before you go. I pray that as you hear these privileges, you think, man, that's amazing. And that you'll want them. And that you'll believe in the Son and receive those. So let's begin with the first new privilege for Gentile believers. The first new privilege for Gentile believers is this, that they are fellow citizens in the kingdom of God. They are fellow citizens in the kingdom of God. If Gentile believers in Jesus are going to enjoy their co-equal status with Jews in Christ and promote unconquerable unity in the body of Christ, they need to remember that they are fellow citizens. In the kingdom of God. We see Paul begin in verse 19. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Do you hear that? Isn't that wonderful? What a, what a, what a change. What a transformation. What a glorious thing that has, has taken place. What a privilege. You're no longer something. What's that something? Paul says strangers and aliens. Strangers and aliens could be used synonymously just to refer to, to those who are, you know, uh, not, not Jews, not living in, a, in, in, the, in the nation of Israel. Uh, or it could uh, refer, they could have a slight distinction between the two as one kind of someone who's non-Jew living in the land but not a citizen and another being someone who's kind of traveling, passing through. Either way, the point is that they're less than citizens, and so they don't enjoy certain rights and privileges that citizens enjoy. And Paul is saying that you Gentiles, before you believed in Christ, before Christ came and you heard the gospel, you were far off, you were lost, you were without hope, you were strangers and aliens. But now, now something has changed, and it's wonderful. You now enjoy full-fledged citizenship. You enjoy all the rights and privileges of the citizens of the kingdom of God. Isn't that wonderful? And he's saying that is who they are now. But you are. It's a a present indicative plural verb speaking to the Gentiles who have believed in Christ. It's not, not that they need to get circumcised to then become citizens. Not that they need to start keeping the Sabbath to become citizens. It's that they are now by faith alone Citizens, fellow citizens with the saints. This is good news. The Gentile does not need to, you know, uh, uh, fix his life or start following, you know, doing certain things for a certain amount of time. Faith alone, they're counted citizens in the kingdom of God. And that is wonderful because citizenship makes a big difference. Uh, To give you just a, a, 
an example of that. We see in Acts 16, I don't know if you remember that Paul's preaching the gospel in Philippi. And a lot of times when Paul preaches the gospel, people get mad, okay? Uh, And so people get mad, and they stir up a mob. They bring Paul and Silas, and they beat them, and they strip the garments off them uh, and beat them with rods, then throw them into prison. And, and then after they spent the night in prison, which, in, in which time you have the Philippian j- jailer come to faith and all this stuff, when they're ready to let them go, he's, they're like, okay, you guys can go free. Paul says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and thrown us into prison, and now do they throw us out secretly? He's like, you're going to tell us not to sneak, sneak out of this city? He says, no, <laughs> let them come themselves and take us out. And it says that the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and took them out and asked them to leave the city. Do you see the difference that citizenship makes? Uh, there's another incident in Acts chapter 22. Paul's in a similar situation, this time in Jerusalem. Uh, another mob is, is formed. They want to kill, kill him. Uh, and Paul's being brought away, and he says, wait, wait, let me just, can I address the people, please? And, and they're like, all right, fine. So they let Paul address the crowd. Paul starts preaching to the crowd again, sharing his testimony with them. And he gets to this point in his testimony, and he's speaking to a Jewish crowd. He gets to the point in the testimony where Jesus told him to go and to share this good news to the Gentiles. And then that word, they heard Gentiles, and it's just like, what? Rah! You know, like they, just, they just started freaking out. And they're like, we've heard enough of him. And so they go, and they, they, they take him, uh, and it says that, Verse, uh, verse 25, it says, But when they'd stretched him out for whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul said, Yes. And the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Do you see the difference that citizenship makes? And if you think that it's wonderful to be a citizen of Rome in the first century, let me assure you that that is nothing compared to the citizenship that we enjoy as believers. In fact, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, uh, Philippi, mind you, is a very loyal Roman special city. Uh, And they had great pride in their Roman citizenship. And Paul says to them in Romans 3, verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. You have a citizenship that is greater than any Roman citizenship, and what Paul is saying that you Gentiles who were strangers, who were aliens, by faith you have been made fellow citizens with the saints. All the righteous men of old, all of those who have been redeemed and bought by the blood of Christ, you join with them in being citizens of heaven. And you will never be cast out of the heavenly city. You will be welcomed. You will be you, have, you will find that you have a place there because you have citizenship. You did not earn this citizenship. You can never afford to buy or purchase this citizenship. But this citizenship was given to you by a gift of grace when you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And though you were not born with this citizenship, you were born again with this citizenship. What an amazing privilege. And let me just remind you that one reason why I use that word unconquerable, because if, if you are looking out and you're saying all these wonderful people, all these Jews and Gentiles are citizens of the same kingdom, then that is something that truly unites you. 
And that's an unconquerable unity because that kingdom that is coming is a kingdom that will never fall. It is a kingdom that will never be demolished. It is a kingdom that will stand forever. In Daniel chapter 2, there's a prophecy. It says that that Messiah's kingdom shall never be destroyed and that it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. So all the earthly kingdoms of the world notice really well that they are fading and passing away. There is a coming kingdom that will stand forever and we have been made citizens of that kingdom. Daniel 7 verse 14 says this kingdom, uh, it says of this kingdom that it's an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. And this is why the author of the book of Hebrews says, let us therefore be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. What a privilege. You're made a citizen of that kingdom. But there's more. We move now on to what, else it, uh, what it says in this verse. It says not only that you are fellow citizens with the saints, but also that you are members of the household of God. Isn't that wonderful? So this second privilege that Gentile believers enjoy is that they are fellow sons in the family of God. Fellow sons in the family of God. And if Gentile believers are going to enjoy their co-equal status with their Jewish believing brothers and sisters in Christ, and if they're going to promote an unconquerable unity in the body of Christ, they have to remember that they are fellow sons in the family of God. This is wonderful. If you put your faith in Jesus, you do not only enjoy citizenship, you enjoy sonship. You're, you're not just welcome into the kingdom, but you're welcomed into the family. This is personal. This is close. This is wonderful. And Paul is saying here that Gentiles who have believed in Jesus, are now fellow sons in the family of God. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, Paul says that for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Again, in Romans 8, verse 16 and 17, it says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What's so amazing about being a son? You're part of the family. Can, can, can anyone tell you that you do not belong to this family if you're a son? Absolutely not. You are a son, and let me just further say, you're, you're, all the sons in the family of God are sons in good standing. And they're loved and they're welcomed. And they have a place. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, you are all sons of God through faith. And in going on, he says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And that's a key thing that you need to connect in your mind. The reason I chose the word sons here, uh, even though the, the passage says members, which may be more broad, you're not members of, a, of the household of God, uh, these other passages make clear that our place in that household is as sons. And that's for men and that's for women. You both are counted, reckoned as sons. And the reason why that's important is because the sons inherit. The sons inherit. Look at what this says in, in, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. It says, The mystery that Paul is proclaiming is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
So if you're a son, then you get to inherit. You get to inherit the kingdom. You get to inherit the family wealth. And all Gentiles who have put their faith in Jesus Christ have become the Messiah's people. They have become sons of God. They've become children of God. They belong. They belong. And they have a co-equal status along with their Jewish brothers and sisters who are also sons, who they will also inherit the kingdom with. And so isn't that good news? You're not a stranger. You're not an alien. You're a citizen, and you're a son. In short, you could say that that means that, that there's always a place for you at the table and that there's a piece of the family land waiting for you. That's how much of a son you are. You are a real son. And that's important for you to understand if you're going to live and enjoy and live out the unity that Christ has created through his death and resurrection. You see, if you view both Jews and Gentiles who believe in the Messiah as all sons of God, then you have no business for excluding any of them or prioritizing putting one above the other or valuing one is higher than the other. You have no place for any of that. This is why Paul says that there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean that gender and ethnicity has been, has been done away with. You still are what you are, but the most important thing about who you are is what you are, that you are a son. And you're saved, and you're forgiven, and you're a part of the family. What a glorious, glorious truth. This creates unconquerable unity. Why? Jesus says that a house that is divided cannot stand. Part of what happens when we are, are all sons and see ourselves as all sons is that the whole house is united. And the house of God is a, is a family that will stand forever. Maybe you, you, all of our families, you guys, know well that they are passing away. All of our families, all of our earthly families are passing away. And you might enjoy those families for a time, and they were nice, and they were wonderful. Some of you had hard, difficult families. Some of you had a, what seemed like a good, healthy family, and then though you just, over time, you watched the whole thing blow up before your eyes, and it was horrible for you. The family of God, let me assure you, is a family that will never be divided. It's a family that will never be broken apart. It's a family where the father will never be separated from and the children. It is a glorious, wonderful, unconquerable, united family. What a privilege to belong to that family. This leads to our third new privilege for Gentile believers. And that is that they are now fellow stones in the temple of God. And uh, this privilege for, for some of us, maybe you're thinking, what? Like, what are you talking about, fellow stones? Uh, maybe you, you're, you're thinking, I can get on board with the, the fellow citizen stuff and that, that fellow son stuff. That sounds nice, but what do you mean by fellow stones? <laughs> that doesn't sound too great. Maybe you're not so impressed. <laughs> but I think Paul saved the best for last says, and let me just read verses 20 to 22 to you. It says that you have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so really important for you to focus on, where are you getting this idea of stones? I'm getting it from the fact that what is being described here in this building, what is being built, two times mentioned, is people, but yet Paul's abounding with imagery of structures and construction and a building and, and all of these things. And so we see that we are the ones who are being taken by another and we're being shaped and fitted 
and smooth so that we will be placed exactly in the spot where we need to be placed in this glorious building. And this building is not just any building, but this building is the dwelling place of God. That's incredible. We are fellow stones in the temple of God. Peter puts it this way, speaking on the same truth. And he'll actually quote two Old Testament passages that mention cornerstone. So when Paul says that that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, he has in mind, he's not just using a metaphor, he has in mind specific prophecies in the Old Testament. And Peter kind of explains those a little bit for us in 1 Peter chapter 2, if you want to turn there. We just, we'll look real quick at verses 4 through 7. I'll read them to you. It says this. As you come to him, speaking of Jesus, a living stone. So Peter sees Jesus as a living stone. He says, a living stone rejected by man, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, now that's us, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter, where do you get that idea? Verse 6, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him, that that cornerstone, that chosen and precious stone. Whoever believes in him, this is Isaiah 28, verse 16, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's a glorious promise. Whoever believes in this cornerstone will not be put to shame. And then Peter goes on, he says, so the honor is for you. Speaking of believers, he says, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, understanding that not everyone has believed and understanding that this stone is rejected, he quotes Psalm 118, verse 22, that says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So let's just think about this for a second. Peter's described Jesus as a living stone. He's described Jesus as a living stone that was rejected by men. What he's essentially saying is that Jesus showed up He was the cornerstone of the new building that God was building. He showed up, and he was rejected. Chief priests, elders, scribes, Jewish authorities, the majority of Israel, along with Pilate, the majority of the Gentiles, all of them rejected Christ. They rejected Jesus, but Jesus, according to 1 Peter verse 4, was in the sight of God chosen and precious. Because he would be the one by which the whole house of God would stand. We see verse 5, Peter says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So if you reject the stone, you stumble over the stone. If you believe in the cornerstone, you get built on top of the cornerstone. You lay down your life, and you lay down your life, and in that same moment, the reason you've done that is because God, the builder, has taken you and shaped you and placed you right on top of Christ. It's incredible. You have no standing without that foundation and without that cornerstone. So you get built right on top. And ironically, Israel's leaders, who are thinking that they're going to help build the house of God, in Psalm 118 says that they reject the very stone that is the cornerstone for the house of God. And this is important because we see then that in the first century, those Jews who rejected Jesus, those leaders, uh, were blind leaders building a house, but not God's house. They were building, but not on the cornerstone. They were laboring, but not in alignment with that stone. They are now waiting and searching for another cornerstone because they've rejected the one that is chosen and precious. And having rejected that precious cornerstone, they have stumbled and will be put to shame when he who they rejected ends up coming and rejecting them. 
You see the true spiritual condition of Israel and her leaders and the Gentiles and their leaders and you and I. The true spiritual condition of a person is seen first and foremost in this way. Do you stumble over the stone or not? Do you accept the stone? Do you believe in the stone or do you reject the stone? It says that the stone of stumbling, he's called that because he causes the fall of many. Many look holy, many look wise, many look powerful, many look good, many look kind, many look philanthropic, many look nice. But they reject what is chosen and precious and they stumble. And they are offended by the rock and they refuse the rock. And they don't consider it necessary to turn from their sins and to believe in him. But this is the only one. This is the cornerstone. If anyone is to have a relationship with God, if anyone is to be a part of God's family, if anyone is to be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven, it's because they are built on this stone. They've entrusted their life to the Messiah. God's grace is mighty and wide. Anyone can be forgiven. Yet there is only one cornerstone, and you must believe in him. And if you do, hear again what that passage says. Whoever puts their trust in him will never be put to shame. Never. Daniel calls the place of everlasting shame and con, con, uh, speaks of the place of everlasting shame and contempt. And it's for those who, who reject the stone. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So I just want to encourage you, come to Christ today. If you're here, if you're listening, if you're hearing this message, come to Christ today. Put your faith in him. Receive him as your Lord and Savior and accept the stone and you will be saved. There's no doubt about it. You will not just be saved, but you will have a place in the kingdom of God and in the family of God and as a living stone even in the temple of God. Those privileges are for you. For those who have believed, these privileges are yours already. And so enjoy them. Know, know, know well that you are a part of, of, of the most important, the most long-lasting, the most permanent, the most glorious, the best place that you could ever be. You're a part of this thing that God is doing and that God will do. You are united to him. And you are serving this as the same foundation, and you're serving, uh, excuse me, you are serving along with others who are sitting on the same foundation and sharing the same function. Let me briefly speak about both of those as we see, see these in the next couple verses. As living stones, G Gentiles and Jews share the same foundation. This foundation is said to be the apostles and prophets. A really good description of apostle is found in Acts chapter 1 when they decide to, hey, we need a replacement apostle for Judas. And so uh, the qualifications given here is it says that so one of the men, this is Peter speaking, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. That's what apostles do. And they look for someone who is an eyewitness of Jesus Christ who had personally seen and heard the things that Jesus said and the things that Jesus did so that they would go out and that they would bear testimony. And, and the idea of an apostle is, is somebody who's authorized, like they're invested with legal authority to represent someone else. And so they are official messengers of Christ, of the Messiah, sent out to proclaim the good news of what Jesus did in his death and resurrection and how he brought salvation for all who repent and believe in him. That was the task of the, the, the apostles. And, this is, and they served a, a foundational role. This is why in Acts chapter 2, after Peter preaches a message, 5,000 get saved. And then it says that they devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Well, why, this, why this special you know, role? Why this focus on the apostles' teaching? Why didn't, they, why didn't they just focus on Jesus? Why didn't they just have Jesus as their teacher? Well, because 
Because Jesus, you remember, he ascended and he's in heaven now at the right hand of God. And the way that he decided in his sovereign authority, who's in control of all things and is, is ruling over everything, in his authority, in his wisdom, he decided to send out messengers, apostles, to preach and teach what he has done and what he has said. That's why they're committed to the apostles' teaching. Because what, was the, what were the apostles teaching? They're teaching Christ. They're teaching Jesus. That's why Jesus is the cornerstone of this foundation, the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. And they, they, God works powerfully through these apostles. Read the book of Acts. Read the different letters. The, 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 you can trace all the people who are getting saved pretty much back to the apostles. And then the, the upper room in Acts chapter 2. And then the whole thing just exploding and going out from, from there. And so the apostles are part of this foundation. But we also have mention of prophets. And uh, prophets serve a foundational role in the church as well. If you, start, if you read through the book of Acts or you read through 1 Corinthians, if you read a lot of different passages, you'll see mention of prophets and prophecy. Uh, in in uh, Acts chapter 13, by the way, uh, this was essentially a church that became Paul's home church. Uh, it says in Acts chapter 13 that there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and Barnabas, uh, Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, and the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So one of the things we see in this instance is one of the functions that the prophets served in the church. They were to speak the words of God. They would receive a revelation from God, and then they would speak those words to the rest of the church for their edification, for their warning, for their rebuke, sometimes even including specific details and, and, and things of the, the future. And so, did you ever wonder who sent Paul? Why did Paul show up? Why did he go on his missionary journeys? He was sent by the church in Antioch, and he knew when to go because there were prophets there, and the Holy Spirit spoke through them. And he went, and he started his whole mission that way. Prophets and apostles served a foundational role in the whole construction of the people of God. God was doing extraordinary things in this foundational period. He was working in ways that caused the early church to, to just explode. And he was doing it through apostles, and he was doing it through prophets. And those Jews and Gentiles who heard the message of the apostles, heard the, 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 the prophecies made by the prophets, were hearing and were believing and were growing and were maturing and were being guided by the ministry done by these two important groups. And so for Paul to say that Jews and Gentile believers have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets underscores that they have the same foundation. They have the same foundation. The Jewish believer and the Gentile believer have been brought to Christ in large part by the ministry of these apostles and prophets. But not only that, they also have the same function. And this is where I think we, we see just how amazing the idea of being fellow stones in the temple of God is. They have the same foundation and they have the same function. This function is described for us in verses 21 and 22. It says that in whom speaking of Christ, or by whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is wonderful. Because you're not just, you know, a random stone in a random building. But but you are a stone that has been placed on top of the chosen and most precious cornerstone, on top of the foundation of the apostles and prophets. You have been placed, and you are one of the living stones in a living spiritual temple of God. 
It's incredible. Pastor Kevin mentioned, uh, I forget if it was last week or the week before, about the court of the Gentiles in the temple, the physical temple in Jerusalem. And also he made mention of, of uh, this, 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 this wall uh, that have a sign that pretty much say, if Gentiles come any closer, any closer than, than this spot, then they do so on the peril of their own death. <laughs> And so Gentile, or Jewish men could go past that point in the, in the complex, but Gentile men could not. They were further away than where the Jewish men could go. And what's remarkable is the word that is used for temple here in these, these two verses. Uh, there's, there's two words typically that can be used for the, the temple. Uh, one of those words is, is, is Huron, and the other word is naos. And when the whole temple complex is typically referred to, it goes by that first word, Huron or Iran. But when the place of the Holy of Holies is being spoken about, it's called the Naos. And what's wonderful about this passage is that Paul says that in him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God, that we're growing into a holy temple. And the word used is Naos. That holy of holies place where God causes his glory to dwell, where unlike any other place on the earth, God decides to locate himself in a way that is different from anywhere else. And he shows up and his glory shines and fills that place. And what he's saying is, in his spiritual temple, you are a stone that is a part and is is the place where that happens. It's incredible. You are a fellow living stone in a temple in which God dwells by his Holy Spirit. You did not just gain access to the naos. You've become a part of the naos that very place where God causes his holy presence to dwell. And this is wonderful. <laughs> if you thought, Hi, maybe I'm, not, I'm insecure. Maybe I don't know if I really belong here. Maybe I don't know if I'm really accepted uh, by, by God, if I'm really welcome. Do I really have a place here? Are you kidding me? You are a living stone <laughs> in the building where God is dwelling how much closer can you get? What a glorious privilege. What a glorious privilege. And so if people want to encounter the true and living God today, they need to come in contact with his temple. They need to come in contact with believing Jews and Gentiles who are living stones in the temple of God. This is the place where the gospel is preached. This is the place uh, where the Messiah is heralded. This is the place where worship happens in spirit and in truth. This is the place where the Holy Spirit of God dwells in his temple of living stones, which is you, which is me. Don't you feel like you belong? Do, do you understand better the privileges that have been given to you all by faith alone in Christ? Do you realize how they, they, they then work together to preserve a glorious unity that, that cannot be conquered? Uh, you know what the bad thing about the, you know, the earthly temples are? Yeah, they get leveled. You know what the good news about the heavenly temple that you are a part of is? It will stand forever. You will forever be living stones. No one can take you out. No one can pull you out. No one's going to level you. You are a part. You are welcome. You are fellow living stones in the temple of God. And this underscores for us permanence, stability, assurance, hope, unity. We can't look down on each other. We can't, we can't have any partiality. There's no room for that. Why? Because we're citizens and sons and stones. Your citizens, your sons, your stones. So treat each other like that. View each other like that. 
Love each other like that. Welcome each other like that. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of money or a little bit of money. It doesn't matter if you're old or if you're young. It doesn't matter if you're master or if you're a slave. It doesn't matter if you're Jew. It doesn't matter if you're Gentile. You are all citizens and sons and stones. Welcome and love each other in in that way and in light of that. I want to just close here with a quote. Uh, I think uh, Clint Arnold, a commentator, just summarizes this all really well. He says, The call to unity within the first century church went beyond the Jew-Gentile divide. Ephesus was a multicultural city with a variety of indigenous peoples from Anatolia, Romans from Italy, many of whom were more at home in Latin than in Greek, Egyptians, Persians, settlers from Greece, and many others. In addition to this, there was the extraordinary economic divide that separated many peoples. They ranged from the wealthy urban elites to many slaves. Some say as much as one-third of the population of the empire were slaves, and probably numerous peasants. The challenges to unity in the first century were no less than they are today. And he says, the contemporary church is built on the same foundation and worships the same Prince of Peace. It is the heart and passion of Jesus Christ for his church to transcend the cultural and economic barriers that separate and divide. And Jesus longs for his church to overcome the cultural barriers of racism, nationalism, and ethnic pride and to embody in a practical way what, it, what he created it to be. An attractive yet countercultural family of people very different from one another who love each other deeply and display the presence of the God who is near. Father, we thank you for these privileges. They're truly glorious. And we recognize, Lord, that we've received them all as a gift of your grace. Lord, help us to enjoy them. Help us, Father, to promote unity, the unity that you have created. Help us to maintain the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. Help us to love one another, Lord. Help us, Lord, to see and view each other as co-equals in Christ. And help us, Lord, to promote unconquerable unity in Christ. If there's anyone here, Father, who has not put their faith in you, Lord, we pray that they would do so even now, that they would believe on your son and be saved and become one of your sons and one of your citizens, and one of your living stones. We ask that you move in their heart in that way, just as you moved in all of our hearts, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.